As we continue in worship this morning, I ask you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. We come by the providence of God to a passage that is a, a very fitting Christmas passage, if you will, that um, on this first Sunday in December. I'll read along, uh, I'll read in my scriptures, and you can just follow along quietly in, in, your, in your Bible as I read the word to us. Let us hear what the prophet Isaiah has to say this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no more gloom for who who was in anguish, for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for its prophecy of the Messiah, this familiar Christmas passage that encourages us with the hope of the coming of Christ. Lord, we pray as people who live in a world that is still under the curse of sin and a nation among many people who are still in darkness. There are many who continue to live in darkness and experience the despair and the destruction because of sin. And Father, even all ourselves included experience the, the physical effects of sin on our world. Lord, we pray as we look to your word today that you would continue to point us to Christ. Point us to the Messiah, the very one who has come to shine light on our darkness. We pray that as we study your word, may you grant us a greater understanding of your, the, your word so that we would understand its truths and its applications for our lives today. Help us to live as your people ought to live, by your grace, for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As Pastor Alton mentioned at the beginning of the communion, this first Sunday of December is the time when Christians around the world, and in this church as well, begin to celebrate and think of the Christmas season. We 
celebrate Christmas with a great joy. It's always an exciting time. It's a fun time. It's a, it's a thankful time for us as Christians when we celebrate Christmas because it is a time of remembering the incarnation and the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We celebrate Christ because in Him we have the hope, uh, the hope of eternal life, the hope of forgiveness of sins, uh, the hope of light in our dark world, the hope of uh, wisdom and knowledge when we lack counsel, the hope of strength and grace when we find ourselves weak. In all we have in Christ, and we, we celebrate this Christmas season, all that we have in Christ. And today, as we've read, we've come to a passage that is a, a triumphant messianic prophecy. It's full of prophecies about the Messiah's coming, his first coming, as well as second coming. Even in this passage, there's at least uh, no less than five prophecies of Christ. And one could look at this passage from an apologetic standpoint to look at how, even, uh, how likely it would be that all these prophecies could be fulfilled in one person in a very particular point in time. And you know, that, is, that in itself is a very strong encouragement for our faith. But we don't want to miss the, the, really the, the point of this passage, the meaning of this passage, the encouragement of this passage in the context of the people of God in those days. It's a message of hope, a message for the people of God to find hope in Christ, the Messiah. And I trust that it will be that message for us today as well. Sadly, when this message was first proclaimed by Isaiah in his day, there was a very few people who responded positively to this message. Not many people in Judah actually responded and say, oh, that's, that's great news. Yes, I'm going to believe and trust in the Lord. And instead of accepting the message of God, many, from the king to the average citizen, rejected the message of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 7, just to give a little background and understand how, why the people rejected the message, we go back to Isaiah chapter 7. And there in Isaiah chapter 7, King Ahaz of Judah was under the threat of attack from the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, and the king of Aram, modern-day Syria. And King Ahaz was afraid because he knew that Judah, the, sm the small, tiny nation of Judah, was no, uh, was no match for the combined armies of those, two, of those two armies, two nations. And even though God had sent Isaiah straight to Ahaz with the very word of promise that their plans would not stand, they would not come to pass, and that God even gave him a sign, a sign of a, of a virgin who would give birth to a child named Emmanuel. He offered him that sign. Ahaz, hearing the very words of God, still did not trust God. He did not thank God for that message. He did not believe in God. He did not put his trust in God. But instead of putting his trust in God, he put his trust in man. Instead of bowing down before God, he bowed down before the king of Assyria. He turned to Assyria and its king, Assyria was the mightiest nation in that, in that time. It's like many nations today might ally with the United States of America because they think that we're the mightiest nation in the day and therefore being allies with us would be protect, a protection for them. And that might be fine for politics, but it's not fine for the people of God who are called, especially the nation of God in this time, who is called to trust in him. And so he bowed the knee. King Ahaz called himself the servant and the son of the king of Assyria when he was supposed to be the servant and the son of 
God. Not only did Ahaz, the king, turn away from God, but so did the people. The people in that day, instead of putting the trust in God's law and testimony, instead of looking to what his word had to say and find comfort and encouragement in that, we learn in the end of chapter 8 that they instead turned to mediums and spiritists. They turned to the, seek the souls of the dead instead of seeking the one who created all souls. And so the king and the people of Judah had as a whole turned away from trusting in God. And as a result of turning away from trusting in God, it led the people into darkness, a period, a, a time of darkness. In fact, God promised that they would be judged for their sin. God promised that he would use the very nation that they had turned in faith to, Assyria and, the, and its king, to bring about an eventual destruction upon not only Israel and Aram, but also upon Judah itself. In the last verse of chapter 8, which kind of gives is a very fitting passage, describes the condition of the people of God. Look at chapter 8, verse 22 of Isaiah. They will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. We see here a people that had turned away from God were condemned to a destiny, a life of darkness and distress and anguish and gloom. And in fact, what's more is that they will be driven away into darkness. They can't even have the ability to turn away back into the light, but they are driven further into darkness because of their sin. And this is the kind of people that Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, our passage today, is written for. It's people like you and me in our world today as well. Many in the world know only the distress and darkness of sin. And they do not know the way out. They cannot see because their eyes have been blinded by the God of this world. They cannot see Christ even though they decorate their homes, and they buy Christmas trees, they put up stockings, they might even say Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays and all that celebration. But they do not see the darkness that they are in. They continue to live life not trusting in God, but trusting in themselves, trusting in others, trusting in their things. And all the while, they are driven further into darkness. This is our world. You see, sin leaves people in darkness. And that's what sin does. From the beginning of time, when, or from the very beginning, when Adam and Eve fell because they took aid of the forbidden fruit, our world, mankind, has fallen into darkness. And even this day of technological, educational, societal advance, we continue to be a people of darkness. Yet, the way out, the way out of darkness is the very same way out that God had provided for the people of God in his day, in Isaiah's day, is the same for us today. And the way out or the source of hope in the midst of darkness is still the same. And the source of hope, as you know, believers, is Jesus Christ. He is the light in the darkness. He is the one who comes and gives us hope while we continue to live in a world of darkness, of distress, of gloom and anguish. 
Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 to 7 prophesies to us of the gift of God's Son. It is a prophecy uh, that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It is in his incarnation and birth into our world that gives hope to a world in darkness. And I pray that as we study this passage today, that if, if, no, when, when you find yourself distressed and discouraged because of sin in your life, in your work, in your home, in your school, in your personal lives, in your relationships, when sin affects all the various areas of your life and you become discouraged, you even have experienced anguish, then this passage is an encouragement to you to draw strength from the hope that is ours in Christ. This passage will point us to Christ this morning. As an outline for us, God encourages his people with hope through three events related to the coming of Christ. And we're going to look at these three today in this passage, and I pray that it would bring you hope as you and I walk and live in a world of, of darkness, of sin. But there's hope for the people of God, and let us be people who respond rightly to it. And let's look then to the first event that we find here related to the Christ coming, and that is, number one, light will shine on darkness. The light will shine on darkness. Christ's coming will bring about the event that light will shine into our world of darkness. Look at, and this is verses, I know it says one to three, but it's one to two. So one to two. But there will, verse one, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. See, God promises here to Israel, that the gloom and anguish will one day be no more. The but is a cl clearly a connection with the verses right before, chapter 8, verse 22, and, fall, and the previous even. That there was a darkness in the land in, of Judah and Israel because of their sin, because of their failure to trust in God. And, but God promises here that there will one day be no more gloom. One day, the darkness will be cast away because light will come and shine upon them. It's interesting here, even as when he talks about the land, he doesn't say we, in earlier times, he doesn't talk about Judah in particular or Israel in particular, but he just points out or he kind of specifies two of the tribes of the northern kingdom, Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, unless you're a Bible scholar, when you hear Zebulun and Naphtali, you go like, I don't know. You know, nothing comes to mind unless you kind of know your messianic prophecies. These are kind of two really, literally in those days, really, they are places where provinces or tribes that were pretty much relatively insignificant compared to the other tribes. It's not Ephraim. It's not Judah. It's not even Manasseh, which has two half tribes. It's not, it's not particularly any uh, significant tribes. But what God says here is that in early times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. That they actually, these two tribes are, if you can, relative to the other tribes, God treated with, with a contempt, a judgment, a greater judgment than the rest of the other tribes. Why is this particularly so? Uh, is because, partially it's because of God, ultimately it's because of God, but there's a geographic element to this. Zebulun and Naphtali 
uh, were two provinces. Or they're kind of surrounding the, the Sea of Galilee area. Uh, but it was on something called the Way of the Sea. And the Way of the Sea that's mentioned here is the only time it's mentioned here. But it's a very a common phrase in extra-biblical literature in those days, referring to a road from, that would travel from the east towards the sea, Mediterranean Sea. It was, a very, it was a very large road so that it enables armies to march through. And so when your armies come through, those, through Zebulun and Naphtali, that's where, well, strategically, it makes sense to make sure you conquer those lands first. And that's often what would happen. Zebulun and Naphtali would be conquered first whenever armies would come and when the king of Assyria would come. And we actually find this refer, referred to or explained to us in 2 Kings 15, 29. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, that's the king of Assyria, came and captured Ejon and Abel-Beth-Maaka and Genoa and Kadesh and Hazor and Gilead and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried them captive to Assyria. So remember, you know, the northern kingdom was going to be conquered by Assyria, and they would be taken captive into uh, to captivity in Assyria. And here in 2 Kings 15, we see the fulfillment of that. Where, but it's the very first place that Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, comes to conquer is the land of Naphtali and, and, and Zebulun, including as well as Gilead, which is the Transjordan, the other side of the Jordan River, as well as the whole area around Galilee. In fact, the Galilee area um, is... Uh, is significant, it's, or significant is that that's, is a big part of the Naphtali uh, tribe. And so that's how God treated them with contempt. But yet God promises to them that though he's treated them with contempt in the past or with because of the, the judgment that would come, he says later on he's going to make it glorious. God's going to make Naph Zebulun and Naphtali too insignificant. Really they become known as Galilee of the Gentiles. Eventually, it just becomes known as a, a land of Gentiles. Yet God promised that he'll make them glorious. Gloom would give way to glory. Darkness would give away to light. Verse 2 tells us this. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. See, darkness is, in the Bible, is figurative of sin. It's figurative of sin, but all the consequent kind of, as well as the consequent characteristics of sin, whether distress, despair, destruction, all, all the things that, that, uh, that sin causes and results in in this world. And these people, it says here, were people who walked in darkness. The people of Judah were walking in sin. The people of Israel were walking in sin. They were living in a dark land. That word dark is significant. It's an interesting, it's a very significant, familiar word in the sense that this word is used in Psalm 23 when D David says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that this word, the phrase shadow of death is really one word in the Hebrew, and it's translated here as dark. And so you could really say this is those who live in a shadow of death land. Is this kind of, so it's a deep, dark land. It's in a dark place. God says the light is going to shine in the darkness, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God is going to shine light. A great light will shine on them. And this is a promise of hope. It is, it is, you know, that old saying, there's light at the end of the tunnel, you know. This is the, it comes from this. You know, a lot of some tunnels, there's no light at the end. But the darkness that the people of God are facing, there will always be a light for the people of God. There's always light, and that light is Christ. You see, you may be experiencing distress in your life. 
You may be experiencing, some of you, even the threat of death, the shadow of death in your life. But God says that in time, these things, these characteristics, these, this darkness in your life will disappear when the great light shines on you. And this promise was ultimately fulfilled in Christ's first coming. This was fulfilled in Christ. This verse, in fact, is quoted in two places in the New Testament. One is Luke chapter 1, verse 79. But there's a second place where much of this passage is quoted, and that's in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. I'd like to read it for you. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We find here that Matthew expressly indicates that Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1, uh, 1 and following, it was fulfilled in Jesus' coming and his beginning of his ministry. Jesus' public ministry brought about a light upon the darkness. It's interesting, when John the Baptist, in the story here, basically when John the Baptist is taken away into captivity, Jesus begins his public ministry. But where does he begin his public ministry? Some people say, well, go to Jerusalem. would have said, go to Jerusalem. That's the capital of the nation. Go there, the religious capital. That's where the temple is. That's where you should go. That's where the priests are. But no, Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee, lowly, insignificant Galilee, in Zebulun and Naphtali. And he does this as a fulfillment of Isaiah. These, this, these two tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali in fact, uh, Galilee uh, is, the Sea of Galilee is, a, is basically where Jesus spent much of his early ministry among the cities, and sometimes he'd cross over to the other side of the, Jor- uh, of the Sea of Galilee to the Transjordan as well, or Gilead, uh, according to Isaiah's passage. And there Jesus ministered. These people who lived in these two tribes got to, were the first to see Jesus' life. They saw him walking, breathing, talking, eating among them. They heard him teach the words. They saw him do his miracles. They experienced his healings. They experienced deliverance from demons and and sickness and illness. But most importantly, they heard the life-giving message of the gospel. They heard the message of repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They were first to hear. And they were land, and thus, in Jesus' coming, and the beginning of his ministry, made the land of Zebulun and Naphtali Glorious, glorious. Because Jesus brought light to the darkness, to their darkness. No matter how dark life may be, no matter how great your sin, no matter the depths of your despair, no matter the weight of your gloom, there is no darkness that the light of Christ can't shine upon there's nothing that the light of Christ there's no darkness that the light of Christ cannot dispel I mean it's just you take a flashlight a simple flashlight 
And when you shine it in the darkness, the darkness disappears. And it's just a flashlight. But the one who is light, the very light of God, the glory of God himself comes and he shines in all darkness, in all its form, whether physical darkness or spiritual darkness, flees away. It disappears. When we allow the light of Christ to shine upon whatever darkness you find yourself in, when you look to Christ, especially if you're already believing Christ, look to him, keep looking to him, the darkness will disappear. The light of Christ has come to shine upon our darkness, whether physical, spiritual, but in every element, in every way. And this is for so that you and I may have hope. We may have hope in a world of darkness. And this began, this was fulfilled when Christ came, because Christ came and died on the cross for our sins. There's a second event here that we see in this text related to Christ's coming that gives us hope as well. And that is, in verses 3 to 5, that oppression will be broken. That our oppression will be broken. Well, particularly for Israel in that day, their, their physical oppression will be broken. Now, notice here in verse, we're going to notice here in verse, that in one, verse 1 and 2, God was spoken of in the third person. But now, Isaiah will directly address God, or perhaps it's, some believe it's Christ himself, but since they're in one, three in the Trinity, we can, this could be both. God addresses him in the second person, you. God, Isaiah's focus is now on God himself. And God, and he says of, of how the oppression will be broken, he says of God several things. He first of all, in verse 3, you shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. And even multiply the nation is a reference to the Abrahamic covenant. God hid the, a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. But significantly, or more, more kind of significant is that God, his God will increase the gladness of the people. He'll make them joyful. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. What stands out here is that the sorrow and the gloom because of the darkness and distress of sin is going to be replaced with gladness and with joy because of the light of the coming of Christ. And Isaiah goes as far to give two examples to describe the, how much this joy will be. Uh, one, of course, is, is when soldiers divide the spoil. You know, they've gone through battle, and, and it's a battle is a terrible thing. And so at the, but at the end of the battles and wars, they could find the joy in, in getting the spoil of their, of, their, uh, of their battle, getting their treasures. There's something here is, is with the one who finds the gladness of a harvest. Every year, farmers would, once a year, would get a harvest of food. And I think of, when I think of this, I think of my apple tree. You know, I have an apple tree on my side of my house. And last year, when I, you know, shortly after, I, I bought the house, and I had this wonderful harvest of apples, like 100 apples. And it wasn't those bitter apples. It was like Fuji apples, you know, delicious. Wonderful. I was like, man, I am rich in a harvest. I was so excited about that. So I thought I was, thought I was clever. I thought, oh, I'm going to uh, prune the tree, you know. So I started pruning the tree. And uh, this, I don't know what I did, but this year, I have zero apples. <laughs> I was very disappointed, you know. I was thinking, man. But what I was thinking about, that's an illustration. That that's one harvest that I miss. I received nothing from. And if I had to live on those apples, I'd be in deep trouble. So you can imagine when a harvest comes along and the harvest and you gather it, 
you're able to live. The harvest is life. There's joy in that. It's like if you were paid only once a year for all your work, and then when that time came, when that time came around and you got paid, you'd be very happy. But if you didn't get paid, you would be very sad. Right, so that's kind of the picture. This, this is gonna be that immense joy because really the harvest of the life because it's life, it's life that you have. It's like it's like you uh, you would die otherwise without this light that is gonna come. God's gonna increase their gladness. Why why will they be so excited and so happy? Verse four: For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. Their joy will come because the people of God will be freed from their oppression. And this is, you know, in the historical context here, it's, re- it's definitely referring to how Judah and Israel will be freed from their physical oppressors because God had just told them about how they will be conquered by uh, foreign nations, by Assyria. Assyria is going to torment them. He's going to conquer and take away uh, Israel into captivity. And Assyria is going to even be able to conquer almost all of Judah except for Jerusalem. Until God intervenes. But one day, God's going to break the yoke of their oppressors. It's significant that God describes this, this, this deliverance as at the Battle of Midian. And this Battle of Midian, uh, which is actually found in Judges chapter 7. In Judges chapter 7, there's that wonderful story. Many of us kind of grew up in children's church or Sunday school. We would have heard these stories. It's kind of a, something we share at day camp all year, how God delivers us, you know. Um, and so how God is mighty. But this is a very, uh, just a, a colorful, very amazing, kind of powerful story of how God delivers his people by his might. And the Israelites in those days were under the impression, and Judges is a cycle of sin. So whenever Israel sinned, God would allow them to be conquered by an enemy. Uh, this time it was the Midianites. And so God raised up Gideon. Gideon was one of the judges who would then lead the Israelites to deliver, uh, to deliver themselves from their oppressors. But if, and Gideon made a call for the army to come up, and it was, it was a great response. Gideon was able to raise an army of 32,000 strong fighting men of Israel. But God told Gideon, that the army was too large. You know, when you fight a war, you, you want to have a lot of soldiers on your hand. You want to have an overwhelming force so you will win. You want to fight a war, you make sure you can win, um, according to some, uh, some famous uh, war person. Um, but God told him, there's too many soldiers, which is odd. You have too many soldiers. Why? God gave him reason. He says, because when you win the battle, you will think that you won the battle. And not me. And so God basically tells Gideon to tell the people, well, anybody who's afraid, just go home. And so he does that, right? And as you know, if, or if you know the story, 22,000 men went home, leaving 10,000 men, 10,000 men to fight. And by the way, the Midianite army was joined by another army. And so they were as numerous as the sand, as the description. So we don't get a number, but as numerous as the sand. So a lot of enemies. Still, with 10,000 men remaining, God said to Gideon that the army is still too large. That's still too large. And, and so he told him to, uh, to do the, bring the men to the river, to drink out of the river. And so it's a very odd little story, a little interesting story. People have make a lot about uh, the story, but I'm not going to get into those details. But basically, just simply based on how men drank water, God whittled the army down from 10,000 men to 300 men, 300 men. 
See, God chose to deliver Israel from Midian through these 300 men. And these 300 men weren't necessarily the mightiest of men. They weren't like, you know, like, oh, they're all like uh, strong, the muscle-building men necessarily. But God didn't even use their might, their physical might to deliver them. Instead, God used a, a series of instruments such as trumpets and torches and empty pitchers to deliver. And I don't want to tell you the whole story so you can go read it for yourself. God uses these 300 men and those kind of things to deliver them, them from Israel from the enemy of the Midianites. This is just a fascinating story. But what, the purpose of that story is to show that God delivers his people by his might. And he wants his people not to think that they deliver themselves by their own might. And that's a real powerful story. It's a powerful story to remember that when we are under oppression, we experience the darkness of sin, when we experience distress and despair in our life or destruction and enemies, a lot of times we'll try to figure it out. And there's wisdom. You've got to figure it out. Use your brain. Use the things that you, God gives you. But we must never forget that deliverance from our despair or the darkness is going to come from God. It's always going to come from God. We sometimes will think, well, I was, good thing I figured this out. Oh, good thing I happened to do that. When it's really good thing God made me think that. Good thing God allowed me to do that. Good thing. Praise God. Because God wants the glory to be his. And sometimes maybe you won't find success because you are relying upon your own strength to deliver you from darkness. And you need to continue to trust in the Lord. But God will bring, will, for, it describes his, his deliverance from the oppression as, as at the Battle of Midian. And so that's just an amazing kind of little story. And just an encouragement to the people of God because they knew the story of Midian. And they were in a very exact same situation. They're facing an army that was mightier than them. This freedom would be described as permanent, according to verse 5. There we see all the soldiers' military clothing not being needed anymore. It would be simply burned up for fire. But what's kind of interesting to note that this oppression that is to be broken because of the Christ's coming was not fulfilled, was not ultimately fulfilled after Christ came. Even after Christ's death, Israel as a nation, if you, remember, if you know your New Testament, continued to be under the subjection of Gentiles, of Rome, right? So how was the oppression, how was the, so the, the oppression was not ultimately broken at that point. Instead, it will be fulfilled at Christ's second coming. And I told you in previous sermons about how in the Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah, a lot of times the prophet would have sort of what I call it a mountain peak prophecy, where it would be mountain peaks, as they look at the coming of Christ, it would be as looking at two mountain peaks in the distance, right? And you can, just like two mountain peaks in, the, in, in a mountain range, and they look like they're next to each other, but as you draw closer to it, those mountains you realize are much bigger, and then there's greater distance, there's actually some distance between the two mountains. And that's what it is like when the prophets of the Old Testament spoke of Christ's coming. They often intermixed and put, considered as one, really, the coming of Christ, both his first coming and his second coming, like two mountain peaks. And so they would describe it even in the very same verse, like this one we have here, in other places as well, we would have a, a prophecy of Christ's first coming and a prophecy of Christ's second coming. So the light of Christ's coming here to, to break the oppression of the people of God, of Israel's enemies, would not be fulfilled ultimately until Christ's second coming. We see this kind of, by the way, we see this other, exemplified even in, by Jesus Christ in, uh, in Luke 4, 
Luke chapter 4, verse 18 to 19, as where Jesus is reading out of Isaiah 61, verse 1 to 2, but he'll stop. He'll talk about the, the, uh, the, um, that the day, of, the, the, the day of, of that Isaiah 61 has spoken has come, but he stops right before the day of judgment, God's, the terrible wrath of God, because he knows even Isaiah 61, verse 1 to 2, describes both first and second coming. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 to 10 is another example of this kind of verse. So this, this uh, deliverance, this oppression that will be broken is something that will ultimately be fulfilled when Christ comes again. We, and many of you who are in our Revela- were in our Revelation Sunday School class last quarter would have seen that in Revelation when Jesus comes to destroy all of his, all the, his enemies and all those who oppress his people. But it is because of passages like this that the nation Israel, as, you, as we, when we look at the New Testament, it's why most of Israel always looked for a political deliverer. It's why they thought Jesus, when Jesus wasn't the kind of king that would deliver them from Rome, they were quite disappointed in him, and they quickly turned away from him. But when Jesus returns the second time, he will destroy all the enemies of Israel and those who oppose him. Yeah. And we can, apply, we can apply this principle, even though it's not fulfilled yet, but this principle of how God, Christ, the light, when Christ comes, he will break all oppression. We can apply it in a different way, in two different ways. One is that no matter what oppression you may face in this life, because of sin, because of darkness, because maybe in this world there are people who oppose the people of Christ, and you may be persecuted for your faith. You may or face oppression for the rest of your life even. You can have, because you have Christ, know that they will not always win. Their oppression will be broken one way or another, if not in this life, in the life to come. One day when Christ returns, he will destroy all who oppress his people. But furthermore, there's another application of this. In a, in a, because for this passage, this oppression that will be broken, there's a spiritual kind of aspect to this. There's a spiritual oppression. In fact, a greater oppression that we have been delivered from, that we have, has been broken, greater than the oppression of men like Hitler, groups like Al-Qaeda or ISIS today. And that oppression is sin. We who are, who are born of, uh, born of and descendants of Adam, we are all born with a, a sin nature. We're all under the curse of sin. We cannot help but sin. We're under God's wrath. We're all condemned to eternity in hell apart from him, and we're on the road to, de- to darkness and destruction, and we can't do anything about it. That is an oppression. That is a, dest- a destiny that is worse than any oppression that we face in this world, even though we sometimes don't believe that. And that is why Christ came, to set us free from the oppression of sin, most importantly. And that's why we find passages like Romans chapter 8, verse 2, where Paul writes, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Christ came to set us free from sin and the judgment of death. And that should bring us great joy as those who have been have our oppression of sin broken. It's why in Luke chapter 2, verse 10, 2, says when the angel announced Christ's birth, I bring you good news of great joy. Christ's birth is a source of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ Jesus the Lord. As believers in Christ, you and I have the great joy of knowing that the yoke of our burden of sin has been broken. 
It's been broken. And we're no longer slaves to our sin. We're no longer in a path of darkness and you can't get out. We now have the grace that is in, in Jesus Christ to actually break from sin, to not follow sin, but to actually follow the Lord, to obey him, to experience the blessings that are in Christ. And even when we do sin, and we do, we have the great hope of knowing that confessing our sins to the Lord results in forgiveness. These are our blessings because the oppression of sin has been broken because of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. There's a third and final event that would cause Israel's sorrow uh, to give way to hope, joy, to give hope to the people of God. And we find in verse 6 and 7, and really this is the, this is the culmination, the, the, the climax of this whole passage. It's why, why light will shine in darkness. It's why a sun will be given to us. Because, according to verse 6 and 7, a, a sun will be given to us. Verse 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Here is the cause for the people's joy is the birth of a child. A child will be born to us. And we know this child to be Emmanuel, to be Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, which we read about, which we read about in, in, Matthew, in Matthew and Luke. And because of its close proximity to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and the description that follows, it's clear that this child that is being born to us is the Messiah, is the Christ. It's the one who has been prophesied, the seed who would, the seed of Eve, the, the descendant of Eve who would destroy Satan. The Messiah's birth into this world will give plenty of cause for us to find hope, to turn our sorrows into joy. And this child is, this joy is possible because the child is no less than God's son. This is not just any other, this is not just any normal human being that is given, born to us. This child will be a son. It will be God's son. And this is another fulfillment that's, this is another thing that Christ came and fulfilled in. We know this fulfillment from John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God has only one son, and he gave that son for our sins. And he gave a son so that we who believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. But there's more, so much more to this son that came that, uh, some 2,000 years ago to be born in Bethlehem, to, be, to rise up and to die on the cross for his sins. And, these, and we find in the latter half of verse 6 through 7, kind of, a, again, another part of the mountain peak, prophecies of Christ's reign, his rule over the land. He will rule over the nation as well as the world. And these will be a source of joy for God's people as well. We see his responsibility in verse 6, three things. His responsibility, and the government will rest on his shoulders, says the scriptures. Christ will one day bear the responsibility of governing the whole nation of Israel, right? The, at this point of time, Israel was, well, Israel and Judah were both governed by wicked kings. They had a, evil kings, but Christ will be a good king, a perfect king. The government of Israel will rest on his shoulders, and in fact, the government of the world will rest on him, as we know will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. Secondly, we look at his character, though, as well in this passage. And this is kind of what we're very familiar with when we kind of look at the think of this passage. That he is, this is why he is perfectly qualified to govern the world. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. 
These four descriptive names of Christ reveal his qualifications. He is a wonderful counselor. You and I, when we are in darkness, when we're in trouble, we look for counsel. We look for someone to help. We say, hey, can you help me? Hey, can you tell me what to do? Hey, I don't know what to do. Go, go, we go around asking our fellow brothers and sisters. We talk to our parents. We talk to legal counsel. We talk to uh, uh, maybe uh, public officials. We seek counsel for what we can do. But there's no greater perfect counsel than in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the wonderful counselor. That's why early in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths. And why it's, so blessed, why it's such a great blessing to have Christ, because Christ is a source of counsel for you and me. He has given us his truths, and his truths are, are in his word, are a source of counsel to us. Not only is Jesus going to call wonderful counselor, but what's more, he is mighty God. He called mighty God in this passage. And here is a clear prophecy of the deity of the Messiah, that he's actually God. He's not just a man. He's God. He's mighty God as well. As God, he'll have the power to destroy, the power to, to give life, the power to raise from the dead. He has the power to shine light in our darkness. He has the power to deliver us from every oppression. This is the mighty God. Thirdly, he's our eternal father. It's kind of weird to think of the son as the father, but he is the eternal father as well. As the ruler of a nation that's sitting on the Davidic throne, the king who sits on David's throne would be like a father to the nation, to the people of God. And he would be that. He would be like a father to them. He would be an eternal father. You know, what we are given all earthly fathers. Uh, imperfect, perfect, well, imperfectly mostly they are. And, they're, they're, you know, sometimes they're awesome, sometimes they're not so awesome, but we thank the Lord for them. But our earthly fathers will not always be around. They get old. Even when they're around, they sometimes fail us. But Jesus Christ is our perfect eternal father. He will never let us down. He will always be there for us. He will always be there to comfort, to care for us. Lastly, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He's the one who brings about peace to our world, peace to us. And this is, of course, in the Millennium Kingdom. He will establish peace in the whole world. But what's more, he brings peace even now, doesn't he? He brings peace between people, man, and God. He himself was the propitiation for our sins. He bore God's wrath on the cross so that when God looks upon us who have believed in him, God looks upon us with love and acceptance because of Christ. He sees only Christ in us. And these, Christ's character, just even looking at Christ's character should be comforting unto us because this is our Messiah. This is our Lord and Savior. But thirdly then, the description of his reign in verse 7. We see his reign. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Christ's government will be completely different from the governments of the world. And that's a wonderful thing, you know. And as, you know, Americans, if you're kind of a, you know, very, have a, you know, a, you know a, uh, into, you know, America being, uh, well, you're, you're patriotic. You know, this country, you could probably say, is one of the best governments in all the world. Okay, you may disagree. That's okay. You may say, this is the best government in all the world. You know, that's pretty good, I would have to say. 
compared to some of the other governments in the world that I read about. It's pretty good. But you can be in the best human government in this world, and it will still be an imperfect government. Why? Because there will be imperfect people sitting in those places of government. And But Christ's government will be a par- perfect government. It will be a government characterized by peace, characterized by justice, characterized by righteousness. You know, in this world, there are sadly, there are too many governments that are not characterized by justice or righteousness. There are too many people in places of government that do not... Uh, that are, do not seek after peace. In fact, but Christ's government will be characterized by all these perfect justice, perfect righteousness, perfect peace forevermore. And while the governments of the world are corrupted by these things, Christ's government will be a perfect government. You know, just think about it. You and I know our government's not perfect. We complain we, you and I probably complain about government all the time. You say, oh, when was the last time you complained about, you know, some aspect of government? And if you, you today, you know, why are the roads got the potholes here? You know, what's our city doing? You need a DMV. What? What? Two hours? You know, three hours? When, you know, when you don't like some rule or law that's been passed in Congress, you, you know, we all have a right to express. And that's, that's actually one of the nice things about our government. We actually have the right to express it. We might complain about Social Security, Medicare, and taxes, and all those kinds of things about our government. But Christ's government came to, do, to give us a perfect reign, a reign where we don't have to worry about Social Security because we have eternal security, but we're, a reign where we don't have to worry about having enough Medicare where they'll cover it. And I, I'm learning about that this week because my father's living with me, and I'm learning about, all about Medicare and what it covers, what it doesn't, what part A, part D, part F, part all those things. It's very difficult. I don't know how you seniors do it. But we're going to have Messiah care in the Medicaid. No more Medicare. And, you know, taxes? No taxes. Because our debt has been paid in full. Our debt has been paid in full. That's going to be the wonderful thing about Christ's government. And it's going to be, not of course, to say that a little facetious, but Christ's government is going to be perfect. His reign is going to be perfect. That's going uh, to be our destiny for the people of God because a son will be given to us, and he will reign in this way. And we will find, until he returns, though, we can find peace in the character of Christ. As wonderful counselor, he gives us godly counsel whenever we need it. As mighty God, he will protect us. As eternal father, he will never forsake us. As prince of peace, he will give us that supernatural peace in the midst of the most difficult of life's circumstances. But none of this you will, you will experience if you do not belong to him, if he is not your God, your Savior and Lord. You know, the people of Judah in that day did not turn in faith and trust in God. But we have a choice today, knowing the, the truth of who Messiah is. We have a choice to trust in him. And the question is, have you trusted him as your Savior and Lord? Have you received God's provision of His Son to deliver you from all oppression, especially the oppression of sin? Because if you have not, you can experience all sorts of earthly joys in this life, but you will be greatly, sorely disappointed when this life is over. In fact, you'll be sorely disappointed even before this life is over. Because the darkness of sin 
is so powerful upon us. You and I know it, even as Christians. The very good we want to do, we do not do, even though we know it. Why did I send that? Why did I do that? I know that's wrong, but I did it anyways. Thankfully, we have Christ who forgives. And but sometimes when you give in to sin, sin leads to further sin. Sin is irrational for the people of God. And that's why, and, sin, and, for, every, and for every sin that we commit demands before a holy God our eternal judgment. God's total wrath. And that's a terrible thing. And, and I can't, my words cannot describe how terrible it is. Because we, we don't quite even, even imagine it to the extent that it will be. But that's why God sent us his son. He sent us his son to die in our place on the cross. He sent us his son, his very son, to take on, to die for the sins of the people who hated him. So that you and I, all whom God will draw to himself, through faith in Christ, can be delivered from sin and judgment. And this is because, and this is why God gave us his son. Will you believe in him? And even if you, are, you, you have already believed him, will you keep on believing in him? Keep on trusting in him. Because this is why Christ came. To deliver us from the darkness that we live in. We continue to live in to some extent in this world. And as conclusion, I'd like to end with something that I heard this week from one of our elders. In, one of our, in our elder meeting, I didn't ask him for permission, so uh, I'm just going to say, you know, leave him anonymous. But I thank him for saying these words. He was remarking to us uh, about Thanksgiving. You know how Thanksgiving, you kind of go around, you share what you're thankful for. Oftentimes, uh, we're grateful for, we'll say things like, I'm grateful for my family, for my spouse, my kids. And that's good. We'll say we're thankful for my job, thankful for our health. You know, thankful for all the, the blessings that God may give us. But he went on and said, basically just pointed out that one day for all of us, our, sp our spouse will no longer be there or well, depending upon who it is, we may no longer be there for our spouse. One day, our kids may no longer be around. They'll grow up. They're going to get older. They'll move on. They'll start their own life. One day, we may no longer have jobs. We're forced into retirement. We go into retirement. We don't have jobs anymore. One day, our health will fail. And when, these time, when those times come, I would imagine that we will all feel a bit of darkness, a bit of distress, we'll start feeling the shadow of death creeping up to us. And the question we ask is, would we still be thankful to God? Will we still give thanks? This passage, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 to 7, 1 to 7, encourages us that if you have God's Son you have everything you need. Even without a job, without health, without spouse, without kids, with Christ, who is our light, who is the Son of God, who died for our sins, you have everything you need.
He is your hope. He is your light in the darkness. And you'll be, and I trust we would still all, you will all, be able to give thanks to him. Because he is our hope. And if you have God's son, whatever darkness you're facing, you have everything you need. If you have God's son, whatever despair, destruction is going on in your life, in the circumstance of your life, you have everything you need. In Christ, if you have God's son, for the destruction, despair, distress because of sin in this world is a temporary one. There's a destruction and despair and darkness that is after this life that is a permanent one, that is much more terrible. But when you have Christ, that one you're for sure delivered from. And for even in this darkness and despair, you have all of Christ, his counsel, his power, his wisdom, his peace, his presence to strengthen you for it. 1 John 5, 11 to 12, end with this. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Do you have the Son? God has given us his Son. Make sure you have the Son. Let's trust in God's provision. And let's find hope in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this passage that reminds us of the hope that we have in Christ because you have given us your son and he has died on the cross for our sins and he is, shine, he is the one who is the light that shines in our darkness. He is the one who has set us free from the oppression of sin and will one day set us free from all oppression. He is the one who, is, who will reign over the world one day in perfect peace and righteousness and justice. But we thank you that he is the one who is even now our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our eternal father, our prince of peace. And in him, we, we, through faith, we have hope for today. No matter what darkness sin may try to bring into our lives. Father, we thank you for Jesus, and we pray that this Christmas we may celebrate and rejoice because of Christ. Help us to, to take every and seize every opportunity to tell of others about this joy and this hope that come, that, is, that is, is ours because you have given us a child and you've given us your son. We thank you, Father, for your mercy and love and kindness towards us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.